morning again. If you're uh, new and joining us for the first time, we're in a series in the book of First Thessalonians. We'll be there for four weeks. First Thessalonians is in the New Testament, towards the back, around a bunch of T books, Titus, Timothy, Thessalonians. It's one of those. In the 800s, I think, if you're using one of the Bibles in the seats. I'm going to give you a brief example, a sort of brief introduction of a principle that's going to be at work today. So I'm going to pretend like I'm on a phone call, and you need to guess who I'm talking to, okay? Here's my phone, and I'm on it. Pick up. Do you, you have it yet? Don't tell anybody. Do you, you guess? Okay. Uh, I don't know. Hold on a second. Do we want two or three? How big are they? How big is the large? You with me now? I'll help you out. If you, if you woke up late, I'll give you a hint. I'm not saying this on the phone. I'm saying this to you. <laughs> uh, one second. Thick or Thin. You with me now? Okay. Yeah, pizza, right? I'm ordering pizza. Now, <clears throat> how did you know that I was ordering pizza? I mean, if I'd done the one more hint, if I'd said pepperoni and mushroom, it would have been painfully obvious. How did you know? How could you pick up that I, maybe I was ordering pizza? Largely the reason is, we could say context, But still, that's a pretty bizarre context. I think what it is, is you are very familiar with the pattern of conversation that takes place when you order pizza. This is Domino's. Will this be for pickup or delivery? That's how they answer the phone. How many pizzas? Large, small? Large, medium? What size? What toppings? Right? What's the name? It'll be about 15 minutes. We know that pattern unless you're really healthy. But regular people know that pattern. (laughs) And might mimic it in an hour. In other words, we don't have to hear the other side of the argument to know exactly what, the other side of the phone call, to know exactly what they're saying. And today, we're going to sort of be in that position. A letter is like one half of a phone call. A letter is going from one person over, and then it's going to do something over here, and it's going to come back. And in the letter today, Paul is going to be saying things that we may not immediately be familiar with because we don't know the pattern. But if you study the letters of Paul, if you study letters of the ancient Near East, if you're familiar with the setting in which Paul was ministering, all of those things give us a sense of pattern to go, we know what's happening. So I'm going to share with you ahead of time what this phone call is about. And then as we talk, excuse me, as we talk through it, you'll see it a little more easily. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, which is what we'll be looking at today, is Paul responding to opposition in the church of the Thessalonians that's trying to undercut his influence, trying to call him into question. So Paul came to Thessalonica and he ministered 
to the people in that church for about three, it says for three Sabbaths. So for at least three weeks, probably not much more than that, he was there sharing the hope of Jesus Christ with them in the synagogue, showing them in the scriptures how the God of the Old Testament is anticipating the man called Jesus who is Christ the Messiah. That's what he did. He reasoned for three weeks in the synagogue and then opposition boiled up and they ran him out. He had to sneak out at night to escape that town. And somehow, over time, opposition has grown in that church or in that synagogue community who's trying to undercut the message by, by making claims about Paul. Like Paul doesn't care about you or Paul had... Uh, Paul's just another one of those charlatan preachers, those travel preachers who take you guys for a ride. They're doing those sorts of things. And Paul's responding to that. So this is sort of his phone call giving uh, his side of things. And it's an autobiographical narrative, which is a very difficult sort of text to preach from. And so what I would like to do, the best, the, what seemed best as I, I studied the text is, to, is for us today to reflect about uh, leadership based upon what Paul says. Paul's going to defend himself by saying, here's my motives, here is my manner, here's sort of what I was out to accomplish. You, you remember that, you look and judge for yourself. Here's what I was trying to do and you were witnesses of it. What do you think? And it ends up giving us a very good pattern for what Godly leaders should be. So that's what we're going to do. Is what, is, what does God have to say about godly leadership, particularly in the church? But I do want to say, for one, this is uncomfortable because I'm, I'm one of those. So I'm in a sort of a weird spot in this sermon. I, I sort of feel like I love you and you love me, so I feel like we can do this together. Um, but I do want to say there's an awful lot of leaders in the church who either lead inside the church or lead outside the church. This isn't, this isn't even a man or woman thing. How we influence one another is very complicated and diverse. And so I think there's something for all of us to learn by looking at, at what Paul has to say here. Okay. Let's look at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. I would describe this as Paul defending his motives with regards to his leadership. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. 
Now, all throughout this argument, all throughout his letter, Paul is going to remind them, his, his sort of mode of argument is he's going to say something, and along the way, he's going to just, all he's going to do is lean on their memory. You remember, you know how it was. He's not trying to interpret something he did. He's not saying, well, as for that one thing, I kind of need to explain it. He's saying, listen, we didn't come with flattery. You know that. Just think back. So he's sort of assuming if they just hear the argument, they'll be able to sit in the information and know what's true, okay? This is sort of how he starts the second chapter. You yourselves know. And he sort of builds over these six verses. In one and two, he says, listen, you know that our journey to you wasn't in vain because the message we boldly shared with you got us beat up in Philippi. Why would we do that? Why would we come and share with you a message that got us clobbered over there if we had impure motives? I mean, it must speak to our conviction that even though we got severely persecuted in one town and we came to you and shared it, and by the way, got persecuted out of that town and went to the next, and oh, by the way, we got persecuted out of that town too, and then the next, and oh, by the way, they showed up there also. Like, the fact that we're sharing something that is that gets us in trouble, says something about what we're trying to do. We're coming with a deeper purpose. In verse 3, he says, we had no impure motive. In verse 4, he says, we didn't speak to please man. Verse 5, we didn't flatter you. He says, you know we didn't flatter you. He's almost leaning on their memory. And number 6, or verse 6, we did not take from you. Had you known who we were, you would have realized we had a bigger gift than you could, what we were bringing was of greater value than what you, how you could have cared for us, but we didn't even bring that up before you. We just shared with you. Paul's saying, hey, our motives were pure. When you're thinking about leadership, Certainly it's worth examining your own sense and, and however you lead or whatever capacity you are, what are your motives? Why are you there? Are you trying to gain something? Now, you know, maybe if you're leading in a business, all right, this gets far enough away that it's understandable that you might be there for the money. But in the realms of life where leadership is connected to calling and as being done beneath the Lord, we really need to scrutinize motive. And as you would look, and as you would think as a church about your church leaders, you know, I, I would say don't adopt a spirit of suspicion. That shouldn't be your starting point is, oh, what's wrong with this guy? You know, start sort of with a sense of, hey, God, God's at work here, and, and people are trying to do the right thing. But at the same time, examine, try to discern motive. And it doesn't always have to be money. Is this person leveraging the fellowship for themselves in some sort of way? Is this person unwilling to say things we don't want to hear? Those are thoughtful questions. In fact, I'll say this. I don't think in a church like ours, if you're going to call a pastor, I, I don't typically think they're going to come here for the money. Not because you don't care for the pastor. You care very well for your pastors. 
but because, and this is a statement about you, not about me, this kind of people will want to call somebody who is professionally successful, which means he could make more on the outside anyway. So generally speaking, the pastors that I think this church will call have, are not coming here for the money. They're deciding that's not a first order in their life. However, there are other things that you need to watch out for. A pastor who needs a synth, uh, pursuing a sense of self-efficacy, like uh, validating themselves with a role of power, validating themselves with position. These things, uh, churches perennially struggle with these sorts of things. Church communities can be haunts for this sort of perversion because church people are nice. So discerning someone's motive is important. It's also worth looking at their manner of, of work. Let's look at the next idea here. So Paul's going to say, hey, not only did we come for the right reason, but look how we handled you. Let me start in the seventh verse. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Two really beautiful images in that reading, by the way. Paul says, I nurtured you like a mother and I fathered you. Both of those images. It, it shows you good, godly leadership. And maybe I'm saying this because of the, my, my background in the military Godly leadership is not just manly. It's very, it's very complex. And good godly leadership in the church has about it a gentleness and a compassion and a patience and a sense of nurturing that is reflective of the metaphor of a mother nursing a child. I mean, in verse 7 and 8, I was gentle, I was affectionate, I was desirous, I shared you with you my very life. And then he gives this metaphor of, of this mother nursing a child. I mean, what's implied in that? Giving without receiving, constant attention, a spirit of nurture. Would that be consistent with the way you lead? Verse 9, we worked night and day so as to not to be a burden upon you. This is why, by the way, with our church, if and when we're able to plant a church, 
we have, not, we have not made the financial burden of the pastor or of the ministry a concern for the church plant. Why? Why make that a barrier to reaching the lost? That's what Paul's saying is, is why would I come to people that I'm trying to win over for the Lord and attach to it some expectation of payment? And this is how, this is how it works with churches. Churches get planted, Lord willing, without that sort of barrier or that, that obstacle. And then as they become established, they intrinsically, through the conviction of the Spirit, begin to support the people that came in that special way. In fact, you'll find out later that Paul, he, so he goes to Philippi and he sort of plants a community in Philippi. And then he's driven out and he goes to Thessalonica. Well, guess who supports his journey to Thessalonica so that he's not a burden on them? Philippi. Once a community is in the Lord, they begin to realize ah, there's certain requirements and responsibilities that we joyfully want to participate in. And so Paul is in, to some degree supported by a church he just planted, even though when he went there, he cost them nothing. Likewise, later on in 2 Corinthians, we're going to find out that the Thessalonians that are now established have become so generous, and this is a poor church. Thessalonica is a poor church. But they are so generous that out of their poverty, they've given in a way that's shocking to the churches around them and is moving wealthier communities to give. Now, notice how that happened from an apostle who went in at a cost of zero. Paul's saying, we don't want any obstacle to be between us and what we're trying to do. Verse 10, you witnessed it. Our conduct was holy, righteous, and blameless. Verse 11 and 12, we shepherded you along like a father, exhorting you, charging you, encouraging you. This picture of mother and father, right? These are traditional pictures, but how beautiful they are. That in one way, Paul is nurturing like a mother. You know, here's a Band-Aid for you, boo-boo caring about their feelings. In another way, he's like a dad who has, in a sense, I am concerned with who you're growing up to become. Where are you going? He says, it's, it's his manner of discipleship and leadership in the church is both of them. It's, it's really, It's quite exceptional. I'll share with you one, one thought. Do I have time? I do. There's a word here. The word is gentle in, in uh, I believe it's verse 7. But we were gentle. That word, it's actually in the earliest manuscripts, it's almost like we were infants. We were, we were babes to you. Okay? And then in a little later, we're going to read in verse 17, since we were torn away from you. Okay? That word, that's where we get our word orphan from in the Greek since I was orphaned from you. So in the same text, what Paul might be saying is, I came to you like a babe, I mothered you like a mom, I treated you like a dad, and then I was orphaned by you. It really is eloquent. It's just beautiful. What is the manner of your leadership, or as you try to discern 
another leader, what is the manner of their leadership? Do they, do they have an intrinsic respect for people? I think we should say that. Within the body of Christ, a leader should have a fundamental respect for people as made in the image of God. They should like people. They should care for people. The church is never anything but people. There's nothing in the church that matters but people. That's all it is. It doesn't matter how big it gets. If, you, if a church is so big that the pastor sort of coming in has the skill set of a CEO, it still does not mean that he doesn't need to care about and for people. It's just the circle of people that his life touches is a little bit different. But we're not simply trying to call effective or capable leaders. We're trying to call godly leaders. We're trying to raise godly leaders and we're trying to be godly leaders. And that involves a love for people. It is possible to do great things with the church without loving people. A good, effective leader can do this. They can do great things at some cost. And people can feel the difference in a relationship between someone who's trying to do something with you and someone who loves you and is trying to bring you somewhere. That, that feeling, pe- people, you don't need a college degree to feel that. People just know. Okay. Let's look at the next section. Verse 13. I think I just want to read 13 and 14. So I'm going to start with 12, actually, to kind of catch us up here. Paul says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And then he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now, I will say this. uh, If you don't know Paul that well, he's not an anti-Semite. Paul is a Jew. So when he says of the Jews, he's speaking generically about the Jewish rejection of the gospel in Jerusalem which by this point was very clearly established. So he ultimately is saying, this church in Thessalonica is receiving the afflictions and persecutions for their faithfulness in their Greek town by their own Greek members that the church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem was receiving in its Jewish context from its Jewish members. But he's sort of celebrating their reception of the gospel. He says, I celebrate the fact that when we came to you and we shared with you these these words of God, you wisely and appropriately saw the words we had to share as not our words, but as God's very words. Not as like, they didn't respond to, wow, that uh, Paul can preach. They are not caught up in the preacher. And they are not caught up in the leader. And they are not caught up in the program. They are caught up in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That, and Paul celebrates it. 
Paul celebrates it. Paul, the sign for Paul of, he wouldn't say it this way, but we can apply it. The sign for Paul of fantastic leadership is when your motive and your manner are so pure that when you finally can clearly share the word of God in its clarity, they latch on to God and not onto you. They rally around the cross. They're moved by the Lord himself, not an individual. That is what's cultic, not Christian. Paul says, we celebrate the fact that when you understand the word, when we shared our words, you went, that doesn't come from you. That's the Lord. And you imitated him. Incidentally, all through this text, I haven't drawn attention to it until now, but all through this text, you can tell Paul's aim. We didn't come to you in vain, he says in verse one, but we we came to boldly proclaim the gospel in verse two. Verse four, we came approved by God and trusted with his gospel. And we speak not to please man, he says, but to please God. Verse seven, we share not just the gospel, but our very lives. In other words, Our gospel was our main thing, and we followed the gospel up with consistently living it, giving you our own lives before it. Verse 9, we declared the gospel to you. Verse 12, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Verse 13, you adopted these words that we preach to you, not as our words, but as the very words of God. All through this, his goal, his mission, is not to build a following around him. His mission is is to glorify the Lord, to make the Lord bigger and bigger in the lives of this fellowship. A godly leader, a godly leader's goal is that the glory of God would be the first thing. More glory to the Lord. And the leader is not only not the most important thing, the leader might not even be the an important thing. What I'm saying is it is capable, I'm sorry, that a capable and effective leader could be improperly received. if not very careful with motive and manner, a very capable and effective charismatic leader could become the thing of a church. Likewise, a very capable and effective leader could lead the fellowship to a good but incorrect goal. I'll give you some subtle examples. Missions. There are churches in the world, I suppose, I, you know, I, I think where missions is, they're all about missions. Missions, 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 missions. You know, it's, you can't touch the missions. Missions this, missions that. That's not, I gotta tell you, it's a good thing. It's not what it's about. The glory of the Lord is what it's about. Jesus Christ is what it's about. Likewise, there's some churches that are about being correct. We're right. We're correct. Straight edges, you're supposed to, oh, you should underline that with yellow. It's a Hebrew word. Very careful about annotations and being correct in this, that. And I got to tell you, it's good. 
I'm all about a church loving missions and being right. That's not what it's about. It's the Lord. It's Jesus Christ crucified for the salvation of mankind. Salvation found through faith in him. The Holy Spirit enabling us and giving us power to grow in the Lord so that we might walk also in a manner worthy of him, giving glory to him. That's what it's about. Okay, I'll close with this one last. I'm going to paraphrase the remaining section. Verse 17 to 6. Talks about, it's actually Paul's expressing his anxiety. He says, I was, or, I was stripped away from you. I was pulled away. I was orphaned by you. I was forced to leave. And ever since then, I've, had, I've been anxious in my stomach for you guys. I've been fearing that all the work that we started in this church, that it would just fall to pieces that it wouldn't survive, that it would be in vain. And he says, at some point, at some point, I couldn't stand it any longer. And I set about sending Timothy to you, even though it left me alone, which might be saying something significant, since we believe Paul had significant health issues. He said, I chose to stay alone in Athens, and we sent, we sent you, Timothy, because we just had to know. We could not bear to fathom what would have happened if you'd fallen away from the message we gave you. And here's what he says in verse 16, but, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reasons, brother, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. I imagine Paul was a good church leader. I imagine he had flaws, but I imagine he was a good church leader. But a good church leader plants a church that doesn't need him three weeks later. <laughs> I'm not saying that as a rule. I'm saying notice it. That his motive and his manner were such that he could be stripped away from it. And because they weren't following him, because they weren't about him, because the, mis- the words of God can stand on their own, the church remained in the faith. Because God, at the end of the day, has his own power and his own spirit and his own agenda. And he happens to mysteriously use us. But you cannot read the third chapter without being reminded that good, godly leadership within the church makes the church dependent on God and not man. I'm going to close this in prayer, and as I do, I'd like you to think of places where you lead. Actually, for me, my biggest convictions as I read this was about my leadership in my home, not in the church. So, my purity of motives as I shepherd my dinner table. Uh, So, where are you leading? Where are you leveraging influence? You don't even have to have a title. Just think through where are you influencing people? And I want to I just bring to prayer our motives before the Lord. What are we trying to gain there? I want us to bring to mind our manner before the Lord. How are we, how are we doing what we're doing? And what are we trying to ultimately accomplish? Let me, let me go ahead and pray with us. Lord, you you made people to be with one another and 
to influence one another. And, and so this gives rise to churches and families and towns and schools and clubs and teams and all sorts of gatherings. Lord, those, those reflect your design. Lord, and in our church are people who are in all those places. They're teaching. They're gently influencing a, a, a friend who's a little weaker or less wise. They are following a leader, trying to discern, is this person worth following? Is they're working for an employer or they're leading, they're supervising employees, Lord, they're coaching. Lord, and then you get into the walls of the church and they're teaching in our classrooms and shepherding people. and In all these ways, Lord, I would ask that you would expose our true motives. Lord, without a suspicion that they're bad, maybe even just to encourage us, to remind us that you're at work in us and to celebrate. And Lord, help us to be reflective of the manner in which we lead. May we be givers and not takers, Lord. Lord, I pray for the individuals here who who are working for the money. They're working to feed their families. It's just a job, Lord. But those people that are beneath them are not just people. They're people made in your image who matter to you, Lord. May they one day say to the, you are a good boss. Lord, and finally we lift up our, our reason, our mission. I ask, Lord, that in the ministries in the church that your name would be proclaimed, your glory would be made great. Lord, and outside the boundaries of our fellowship, to the degree that is possible and right and wise, may we be able to leverage our influence for you. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.